0: And as you're doing that, let me pray for us. Father, our hearts would would sing and cry out, Hallelujah, glory be to our great God. Glory be to you, God. And we would sing that because of who you are by your very nature. That we recognize, Lord, that you are steadfast in your love and in your grace and in your mercy. Lord, that you are holy and, and unchanging and that, Lord, that the, the evidence we see of your character, Lord, in, in Scripture and in the past is the same yesterday and today and forever. And so we, we, we glory in who you are in your character and we glory in who you are in your works. We glory in who you are in your works, especially in your work of salvation, to, to provide for us forgiveness and grace and restoration. How, how glorious that is. Father, we pray that you would speak to us through your word. We thank you for the gift of your psalms. We thank you for the gift of Psalm 51 for us as, as ruined sinners, us as, as wretches, to, to, to show us the grace and the forgiveness and the salvation you have, that you would save a wretch like me. Thank you, Lord. We pray that you would bless the, the preaching of your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you heard of the Lady Macbeth effect? This is a psychological classification that is named after the William Shakespeare character. Some of you might have read this story or this this book in high school about Macbeth, and and specifically about his wife, who she manipulated her husband into killing the King of England. Not that he was innocent by any means, but particularly out of the story that Shakespeare tells that Later in the story, Lady Macbeth is so overcome by her feelings of guilt, she is shown trying to wash the blood off her hands. The problem is there was no blood on her hands. It least not not literal blood. She was trying to wash off blood that only she could see. She, She felt stained by what she had done, and she longed to be cleansed. And the psychological study shows that this is no mere fictional portrayal of guilt. That These psychological researchers, they asked participants in a study to think upon some past unethical behavior. That was the whole study. Some of them had to think about something else, and some of them had to think about unethical behavior. And then at the end of the study, they said, good job, here's a prize for being a part of our study. And they got to choose either a pencil or an antiseptic wipe. Well, about 75% of those who thought about the unethical behavior chose the antiseptic wipe versus just a few people out of the people who thought about other things. And the, and the study is showing that there's, when we are faced with our guilt, when we are faced with what we've done, there is a longing for some ways to be cleansed. Maybe you're here this morning, and you know exactly what Macbeth is feeling. You, you feel that your hands... Or your life, it has been stained by your guilt and by your shame. Maybe that's what keeps you up at night. Maybe that's what you're, why you try to hide in your work or hide in your leisure or hide in your social media use or hide in your Netflix binge watching or hide in your, 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 your busyness or hide in your procrastination, but you're trying to hide because you don't want to have to look in the mirror because you don't know what do you do with this, with this guilt and this shame. And there's good news, right? There is good news for you and for me and for all of us this morning is that the God of the universe has given us this gracious gift, that he's given us Psalm 51 to give us this picture of what do we do? What can we do with our guilt and our shame? Where can we find cleansing and forgiveness and restoration? we find this gift of our gracious God in Psalm 51. Look down there where the prescript of this psalm tells us about what this psalm is about. This prescript tells us it was written by David, and it says that David wrote this when Nathan the prophet went to him after he'd gone into Bathsheba. Many of us know this account. It's out of 2 Samuel 11 and 12, where David, as the king of Israel, used his power, we should say abused his power, in order to sleep with another man's wife. And it wasn't just any man. If you read the rest of, the, uh, of, of 2 Samuel, we see that Uriah was not just any man. He was one of his mighty men. This was one of his friends. David knew, has been told that, that Bathsheba was Uriah's wife, but he brought her to his home anyways. And he got her pregnant. And out of fear from being exposed, he tried to cover it all up, eventually having Uriah killed. David probably thought he was going to get away with it. But we know from Psalm 32, which Pastor Bob read this morning, that that the guilt was tearing him up from the inside. He says that when he was silent, my bones wasted away through my groanings all day long. He was like Lady Macbeth, just feeling on the inside. He just could not get clean, could not get cleansed, could not get forgiven. And finally, God sent the prophet Nathan to to confront David with his sin. And David's response is to confess his sin, to repent from his sin. And the, the prophet Nathan says this, I love it, the prophet Nathan, or David says, I've sinned against the Lord, and the prophet Nathan says, the Lord has put away your sin. My friends, that's our hope. That, that is our hope, that we can hear God say, I've put it away, it's no more. That we are forgiven, that we are cleansed, that we are restored by the Lord. And, and that's our question this morning. That's, that's what we can ask of this psalm, is, is that when we have sinned like David... When we are facing guilt and shame like David, how can we repent like David so we can experience the forgiveness that David experienced? That's what Psalm 51 is about. Psalm 51 is a heart check where we can go to God to, to, to see if we are, are, are expressing that repentance and know the assurance of forgiveness that God offers. So let's look about this heart of repentance. We see that first, we see that a, heart, a repentant heart expresses confession. Look at verses 1 and 2 with me. Where David writes, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Think about how this psalm starts. See, sometimes in our sin and in our guilt and our shame, we don't know how to start. We don't know where to go. We don't know what to say. Where do you even start dealing with this, all this stuff? And David says, here's where you start come to God. That's what David says. Here's how you can start. Come to God. God knows all that already. God knows your sin. God knows your sinful heart, even to depths that you don't even know. And he still loves you. Come to the God who loves you. That even though we fail in our sin, God does not fail in his love for us. He is steadfast in his love for us. Even while we are still sinners in rebellion against him, God loved us and sent his son Jesus to die for us. So start your repentance, start. And when you say, I don't even know how to start, start by coming to God, the God who loves you. That because of God's love, we can come to him for mercy, David says. Well, why does David need mercy? Well, David does realize he needs help with his sin. Look look at those verses. Look at how many different words he uses for sin. You see that in verses one and two? Three different words. One word doesn't cut it. He's got to describe his sin with three different words. They're transgressions. He's crossed the boundary line. He's, it's iniquity. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a defilement, and it's sin. He is, he's missed the mark. It's a comprehensive picture. He knew that he was guilty. He knew that he was a sinner. But you know what's amazing? That Even though there's, he gives three terms for sin, he gives three pictures of God's love, of God's abundant love and mercy. And, and, and it just, it's amazing. It, God's mercy, steadfast love, and abundant mercy. And so that, that God is the merciful one who invites us as sinners to come to him. So how do we do that? How do we then come to God in our sin? Well, the Bible uses the word, describe that as confession. You don't find the word confession in Psalm 51, but this is, confession is what we see in Psalm 51. This is what it means to, to confess our sins before the Lord. That's what David is doing. So let's look at this picture of confession in verses 3 through 6, where David says, For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin and my mother conceived me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom and the secret heart. This is a picture of biblical confession. If you wanna do a heart check and say, Am I genuinely sorry for my sin? Am I genuinely repentant? Then you can look at these verses. This is what what confession is. And so let's look at this picture of confession and and break it apart, what what it shows. First of all, confession is saying, I'm aware of my sin. I'm aware of my sin. There is an ownership of what's going on here. Look at how David talks about these transgressions and iniquity and sin in these verses. He says, I know these are my transgressions, my iniquity, my sin. There's an emphasis on my bad. This is me. This is on me, right? David gets this. Sometimes we don't get this. Sometimes we don't get this quite as much as David gets this, right? So we, we like to apologize more than we like to confess. Apology is, let me make a defense on why this happened, Right? because we don't take ownership for what we've done, right? We don't confess because we don't actually take ownership of what we've done. And so we make excuses. Yeah, I did that, but I was tired. Yeah, I did that, but I was hungry. Yeah, I did that, but did you know what work was like today? You're laughing because you know it's true, huh? (laughs) Right? We, We blame our sin on something outside of us. So we can't say what David is saying here unless we said, yes. I own that sin. So we blame it on circumstances or we blame it on people, right? So that's when we say, I'm sorry that you said that. That's why I reacted that way, right? We, we, we blame it on circumstances or we blame it on people. We blame our attitudes on our spouses. We blame our attitudes on our coworkers. We blame our attitude on our children, right? But David doesn't do any of that. What genuine confession is, is saying, yes, circumstances may have been bad. Yes, people may have just been really just, just hard today, but I'm going to own my actions. I'm going to own my attitudes. I'm going to own my reactions to what they did. That's my sin. That's what David's doing. That's confession. Confession first is being saying, it's my sin. Secondly, confession is, is saying, I'm aware it's my sin. You, say, you just said that, Craig. Well, I did. It's a definite emphasis. First part is saying, I'm aware it's my sin. The second is being aware, I'm aware it's my sin. We see David do this too. He's aware that this is not just a minor infraction of what he did. He's aware that what he did was sin. Think about this word transgression that David has used a couple different times now in this psalm. Transgression means crossing a forbidden boundary. It is a declaration of rebellion in the Annals of Julius Caesar, it was written that the Roman Senate had declared that as long as a general remained north of the river River Rubicon, they were at peace with the Roman Senate. If they crossed that boundary, if a general and his army crossed that boundary, it is a declaration of war, which is exactly what Julius Caesar did. He crossed the river crying, the die is cast, knowing that that brings about war. It is an act of rebellion. It is an act of a declaration of war. That's the word that David uses here. It's this, this transgression, this declaration of rebellion. If you have a Christian standard Bible, it translates that word uh, uh, um, uh, uh, transgression as rebellion. I think that's a good translation. Is It's an act of rebellion against the God of the universe. That's why David goes on in verse 4 to say that his sin is primarily against God. It's kind of a strange way to say this, right? Because others were affected by David's sin. Uriah's dead, right? You You kind of have to say something about that, right? Bathsheba was certainly affected. Others were affected. How can David say, yeah, God, it's just about me and you, right? But we have to ask why. Why is what David did to others a transgression? Why is it sin? Why is it iniquity? And David understands it comes to the very nature, sin comes to the very nature of God himself. We don't understand what sin is unless we understand who God is. See, why is harming another person through adultery or murder or some other acts, why is that sinful? Why is that evil? Why is that immoral? Is it because it's just socially unacceptable? Does that mean that in a culture that accepts murder, that murder is okay and genocide is okay? No, right? There's something beyond socially acceptable. There's something more beyond what is acceptable by the basis of of what what some people look to evolution. Evolution would say that murder promotes the strongest of the fittest. So we should promote that. So so obviously it's, it's not based in anything, and those sort of ideas, it's based in the very nature of God himself. You know it's interesting. I remember a New York Times article a few years ago, who was describing some of the things that were going on in this world, and the the the, the uh, I think it was an op-ed piece, and the guy said, "I don't believe in evil, but this is evil," because he can't believe in evil if there is no standard for good and evil. But he's looking at saying, "But this has to be evil," because th- there has to be this standard of right and wrong, which comes from the nature of God Himself. Why why are abuses of power wrong? Because God is the one who has entrusted leadership with that power. Why are lies and cover-ups wrong? Because God is a God of truth. That's why David recognizes that his is not just sin against other people, but his sin against other people ultimately stems from his rebellion against the God of the universe, the God who created him. And that's what makes his sin so serious. Years ago, I heard John Piper illustrate this, that his stuck with me has been so helpful in my understanding of this. See, the heinousness of sin is not as much about the act itself as it is about the one whom the sin is committed against. Let me say that again. The heinousness of our sin is not just merely about the act itself as it is about the one whom we've committed that sin against. And, and, and you see, we, even, even as a non-Christian, we can understand or someone can understand this idea in our very consciences. If you go and you tear someone down, you're deeply sarcastic and you shame someone, right? If you do that to an adult, right, it's called Twitter. <laughs> or or it's, called, it's called a roast, right? It, it, that, that it's, we would still say that's not right, but socially, for some reason, we accept it. If you, if you shame and tear down a child, it's called abuse, rightly so. Why are the different standards? Same action? Because of the innocence, Be- because, because of the innocence of that one that, that has been been shamed. in the same way that, that if someone was to go and to deface properties, uh, someone going to go deface the, the school across the street, right, a a rival high school comes and defaces the the campus, right, that there's penalties for that, you know, community service and having to clean it up and those sort of things. If someone was going to go and deface the Declaration of Independence, right, my name is Bob, you know, spray-painted across the Declaration of Independence, you don't just get community service, right? Ah, 20 hours of community service, clean it up, and you're good, right? That is an act of rebellion against the United States of America, right? There is huge news coverage, huge court case, you know, people saying throw them away for life, right? What's the difference? It's the same action. But because of the glorious nature of that document, of the value that we place on that document, that same act carries a greater weight, a greater seriousness. Well, let's apply that to what David is saying here, that when we realize that the one that we have committed our sin against is not just another person, but it's because in our act against that person, we have rebelled against the glorious, holy, valuable God of the universe. An infinitely glorious God brings an infinitely serious offense. And that's what David recognizes. He says, I I know this is not just some small little things we just brush under the rug. This is a sin against the holy God of the universe. So he says, I know it's my sin. Thirdly, Here's what confession is. not just saying, it's my sin, I own it. It's not just saying, it's my sin. I recognize the seriousness of that sin. But it's also a confession of recognizing that it's not an exception, that this sin comes from his sinful nature. Look again there at verses five and six. What is David saying here? Is David saying, I know I messed up there. I know I'm guilty there, but that was an anomaly. That was an exception. I'm a good person. You see me as king. It's good, right? That was just an outlier from what normally happens. Is that what he's saying? No, no, right? He's saying my sinful actions are evidence of something in my heart. My sinful actions are evidence that I'm a sinner. I mean, think about the images he uses here in verses 5 and 6. He talks about uh, this thing from birth. He's not trying to blame this off on his mother. There's no Freudian stuff going on here, right? He's he's saying that ever since he was born, he has been this way. He's been a sinner, Verse 6 says that God desires us to be internally following truth, but David's acknowledging he doesn't have that truth internally. We're, he, like us, are predisposed to sin and folly, not wisdom. Now, can I be honest? As a parent, I don't know how we deny this. right? I, I just don't know how we deny. I, I love my boys. I love my boys with all of my heart, but they are just little sinners. right? They are controlled by their sinful hearts just like I'm, Daddy's controlled by his big sinful heart right? No one needed to teach my boys how to be selfish. No one, especially when you put two boys in one home, right? No one needed to teach my boys how to throw a tantrum, but man, they're good at it, right? It it comes from their hearts. They're, They're controlled by their desires. David's saying that what he did is not an exception. He's not trying to write it off saying, I know I'm good. We can just forget about that one thing, but we sin because we have a predisposition to sin, we sin because we're sinners. That's what David's saying. Now, some people may say, I, that's, that's a tough issue. I, I understand that I'm not perfect, but the idea that I'm, I have a predisposition for sin or that I'm controlled by some sinful nature, I, I, so that, I can see how that could be difficult for some people. But let me ask you, why do you get angry at your kids sometimes? Why do you get jealous of someone that is your friend When you see certain things on social media and you start to become envious and jealous of someone that you do care about, why do you lie to people that you do trust and you find yourself lying to them about things that don't matter just to make yourself look good? Things that you would never just logically think you'd do and you do them. Why? Because you're being controlled by your inward desires. We are, we are being controlled by a sin that's coming from our hearts. See, something in your life, in my life, becomes so important to us. Maybe it's, it's having peace at home, right? Maybe it is having success in life. Maybe it's having a good reputation. None of those things are bad in themselves. But something becomes so important to you that it becomes the ultimate thing. That becomes the ultimate thing that you must have, that you build your life on, that you worship in your life. And it starts to control you so that whenever someone else or something else starts to threaten that thing that you are building your life on, you respond with anger when you never thought you'd respond to them that way. You respond with jealousy. You you respond with, with lying. And you never expect that, but it shows you that something is, you have valued something so much in your heart, this idol, you could say, it, you've built in your heart to this thing in life, that it's become the ultimate thing. It controls you. You are valuing that above God. You are worshiping that above God. You are saying, this is worthy. God is not. And you shame God. And David knows this. This is what David recognizes. He's not trying to minimize our sin. See, sometimes when we confess, we try to make excuses and minimize our sin. It's really not that bad. And look, I do a bunch of good things. David says, no, I understand that this sin just shows that it's out of the overflow of what's in my heart that I did this. If I show this, there's much more of that going on in my heart. He knows he's showing that he's controlled by his sinful idols. He's being controlled by his longing for pleasure. He's being controlled by his reputation that that brought about that cover-up that he was building these, his life on these things instead of God, which ended up in those acts of rebellion because he's a sinner down to his very heart. So our question is, when we sin like David, when we recognize these things like David, how can we repent like David so we can experience the forgiveness like David? This is how we do it. We confess in this way, that genuine repentance is to having this kind of confession. In the New Testament, we have this glorious verse, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a glorious verse, right? But we need to understand, what does it mean then to confess our sins? Well, that word means to say the same thing. If we say the same thing as God says about our sins. See, sometimes, and I'm involved in counseling, I'll I'll ask someone to read Psalm 51, and I'll say, does this describe how you are confessing your sin?" And sometimes it's yes, and sometimes it's no. But this is what what John is talking about when when we confess our sins. I acknowledge it's my sin, like David does. I'm not going to make excuses. I'm not going to make apologies to try to defend what I did. I recognize I own it. I confess it's my sin. I know this. It's, It's serious. It's an act of rebellion against God. And I confess it's not just an exception for me. It comes from my sinful nature. I'm a sinner. And here's the promise of 1 John 1.9. When we do that, when we confess our sins, God is faithful to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that's what we see. That's what David experiences. That's what we see in his prayer in verses 7 through 12. So let's look there as we see David pray for these things. And notice it's not just, God, forgive me, but he's giving this slideshow, this collage of pictures of of the multifaceted nature of God's forgiveness. I I just want to focus on these pictures In in these verses, think about what are the different pictures that David is describing through his poetry. Look first at verse 7, where he says, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Well, what's the picture here? Think about the language that David's using. He's talking about purging or purifying or being clean. This is the language of washing or purification, right, of being cleansed. That that word purge, sometimes your Bible might translate it purify or cleanse, actually comes from the Hebrew word for sin. So what he's saying here is literally, de-sin me, God, or un me, God. Cleanse me from that sin. But it's not just about the words he used. Think about the picture he's using here. What's this picture of hyssop and washing and what's going on? This is, this is a picture from the Old Testament temple. If you read the Old Testament and you read books like Leviticus, this is drawn straight out of there where the priests would take the hyssop branches and they would sprinkle water on someone who had been declared unclean as a declaration, you're clean now. Can you picture that? Someone who had been declared unclean because they, because of things they did or things that had been done to them, and, and the priest comes and, and as, as a picture, sprinkles that water to, to, to declare before God and before all, all people, you are clean now. Can you, can you see the expression on someone's face of just the weight being lifted? That, that's the picture that David pulls on here. See, like Lady Macbeth, we want to experience how do we be cleansed? And David says, when God washes us, we're made white as snow. There's not a trace of our sin and guilt left. God literally de us and cleanses us. So that's the first picture. Look at the second picture in verse 8. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. This is the picture of healing, going from brokenness to joy. See, we think our sin's going to make us happy. We think that when we get the idols of our heart, the things that we are longing for, then then we're finally going to be happy. But we don't get that, right? The more we get, the more we crave, and the more those idols start to control us. Sin breaks us. Sin robs our joy from us. The picture here is having your bones broken, having your bones crushed. And, 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 and we know that feeling. That's what David felt, right? As, as you're feeling, as you think about the effects of your sin, you think of the effects of the circumstances that brings, you think of the effect the discipline brings, and you feel crushed. And God says, promises that He'll restore our joy. God can take what is broken, and as the good physician, he takes what's crushed and makes it whole again. Look at the picture then in verse 9, the next picture in this collage. It says, hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. What's the picture here? This is the picture of the accountant ledger. This is the the picture of a a record book. Think of an accountant who's keeping a, a record of debt, right? See, David's saying, how can there be forgiven if there's still a record for my sin?" if you still owe a debt, someone might say, that's all right, but it's still in the book, right? How, how, do I, how do I be good if it's still in the book? And so here's what he's asking God to do. This is the poetry, the imagery. He's saying, God, take your eraser and erase it out of the books. I know, they didn't have erasers back then. So really, it's, it's take, take your pen and scratch it out. Scratch it out so no one could even see it, Right? Just take, take, scratch it out so there's not even a record in there and mark on there instead, paid in full. That, that's what he's saying here. Otherwise, it's not real forgiveness. Otherwise, we can talk about forgiveness. But if God erases the record book, if God scratches out the record, that's real forgiveness. Because if it's not in the book, it can't be held against you on the last day. Look at the next picture again. He's just stacking up picture upon picture upon picture upon picture. Look at verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit in me. What's the picture here? Well, there's this picture of this new work inside, right, this internal change. Because the problem is is that if I'm forgiven and I'm cleansed, if I have a sinful nature, I'm just going to go do those same things again. And Jesus says in Luke 6 that you recognize a tree by its fruit, right? Fig trees produce there we go. Thorn bushes produce. Fir trees produce. Ah, gotcha. <laughs> right? Cones and needles. Ah, there we go. But think, think about like a fir tree, right? Think about your Christmas tree that you get each year. How many of you expect to get fruit off your Christmas tree? You don't, right? You, you might put some candy canes up there, but you know it didn't come from the tree. Right? The only thing it's going to produce is more needles for you to vacuum up as the season goes along, more and more needles, right? But the only way for a fir tree to produce figs is for the fir tree to become a, there we go, right? Right? You have to change the very nature of the tree itself. And that's what David's saying. David's saying that he longs to, to experience this repentance, this new change in life. But that means God needs to, to, create, to recreate the very nature of David in himself. And that's what he prays for. Because that's what God can do to bring a change of nature, a clean heart, a right spirit. That David, I love this word, he asked God to create a clean heart. Think about that language that is straight from Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth out of nothing. And that's exactly what David is asking God to do. That's exactly what God can do, where he can create, do this miraculous work out of nothing to create in us a new heart that would hate our sin and respond in love to our God who saved us. Then finally, look at this last picture that David gives. Look at verses 11 and 12. Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. What's David talking about here? He's still giving these pictures of forgiveness. Think about the context, this picture of what God does in forgiveness. This verse is not about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. This This verse is not primarily about eternal security. That's not what David's primary point is. Verse 11 is made by two parallel lines. Two parallel poetic lines, which are meant to be interpreted together. So what are these two parallel lines giving a picture of? They're picturing the difference between the separation of a presence from God with verse 12 of being restored to the right relationship with God. These verses are all, this is friendship language. This is friendship and reconciliation language. That our sin, it separates us from God. It's rebelling against God. It's declaring ourselves enemies of God. It's shaming God. But God brings us a, gives us a forgiveness that's going to make us his friends. It restores us into a right relationship with God. This is not just a legal matter of where he cleans the books and lets you go. It's not just a doctor matter where he sets your bone and sends you home. Where God, when he forgives us, he restores us to a right relationship with himself. We were deserving to be cast out from his presence. We were deserving to be separated from God's Spirit, but instead he restores us with the joy of of salvation. He upholds us with his Spirit. This is the picture of friendship. This is the picture of of a relationship, of going from God's self-declared enemies to being divinely declared friends of God. So let's take a step back real quick in this section. I want to think about this section as a whole. This is a whole section meant together. David is not giving one type of imagery with his poetry. He's giving a bunch of imagery. Think about a collage of pictures all about the multifaceted natures of God's forgiveness. David, what is it like to be forgiven by God? He says, let me show you my scrapbook, right? That's what he's doing here with all these pictures. He uses the picture of a temple of being cleansed from guilt and shame and sin, being declared cleansed. He gives the picture of a physician. God brings healing to what is broken. He gives the picture of an accountant erasing the record and the debt of sin. He gives the picture of creation, God creating and doing a new creation work in our hearts. He gives the picture of relationship, of enemies being reconciled to friends. That's the abundant mercy of God. That's the steadfast love of God at work in our forgiveness. When we've sinned like David and we've repented like David, this is the forgiveness we experience like David. And praise God for that. But here's the million-dollar question. How is that possible? I know that we just want to say, I'm glad that is possible, but let's ask the question. How is that possible? Is Is this forgiveness some religious fantasy? Is this forgiveness some legal fiction? How do you, you can't just scratch something out of a record book, right? How can God take what is defiled and just call it clean? How how can God take what is broken and just call it healed? How can God take what is guilty and just call it forgiven? How can God take what is depraved and just call it new? How can God take what is alienated and call it restored? How is this an actual reality? How do I know that this is not just good feelings, but something I can bake my hope on? Well, if you were asking that question, that's a good question. It's the question that the whole Old Testament revolves around, of how can a sinner be accepted by a holy God? If God is just and right, how can he just say through Nathan to David, your sins are forgiven? Wait a minute. How do we just overlook what he did? Imagine you were Uriah's sister and he had your brother murdered. Imagine you were Bathsheba's father. And he treated your daughter and abused his power to do it. How can God just say, your sins are forgiven? How can God say that? In the New Testament, we find the answer to this question. Flip over to Romans chapter 3 real quick. Keep, keep your finger or something or paper in, in Psalm 51, but look at Romans 3, where we see through, through redemptive history the picture of, 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 of the answer to this question. Romans chapter 3. I'm going to start in verse 20 to tie us into the section we're going to look at. In verse chapter 3, Jesus is making the same point David did, that we are all sinners, that we're sin by our very nature. And in verse 20, he says, For by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So he's saying even if we try to make ourselves right, even if we try to cleanse ourselves, even if we try to keep the law to make ourselves good enough, we can't do it. We can't make ourselves right before God. Verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, through the, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So there's a righteousness. There's a way that we can be forgiven and declared right apart from trying to keep the law. It's an alien righteousness. It's not something I can do. It's something that comes from outside myself. So where does this righteousness, where does this being able to be right so that we're declared forgiven come from? Look at verses 22 through 24. The right, this righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. How can I be declared right and forgiven by a holy God? It's through faith in Jesus Christ. It's this, this alien righteousness comes through, from Jesus Christ. Well, how is that possible? Look at verse, the first part of verse 25. Whom God, Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation By his blood. Here's the answer to our question. How can God take what is is sinful and call it forgiven and all the rest of that? How can can a sinner be accepted by a holy God? It's through the propitiation of Jesus Christ. That's great, Craig. What does propitiation mean? I'm going to tell you. Propitiation means that on the cross, Jesus bore our wrath for our sin. We deserve, we committed cosmic rebellion against the infinite holy God of the universe. We deserve an infinite punishment, and Jesus took on that infinite punishment. Everything we deserve for our sin, everything David deserved for what he did to Bathsheba and Uriah, Jesus says, I took the punishment for that. What you feel needs to be done to make this just, to make this right, Jesus says, that's what made the cross the cross. As 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him to be sin. God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin. Jesus bore the punishment we deserve in our place as our substitute so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus took our punishment so that we could receive the forgiveness he deserves. He took the punishment we deserve so we can receive the cleansing and healing and reconciliation he deserves for us. And then look at the end of verse 25 there. At the end of verse 25, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. So when we ask the question, how can God tell David, God's put away your sin. What about what he did to Uriah? What about what he did to Bathsheba? We look to the cross and Jesus says, I paid for that. Every ounce of it. In verse 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So that God is right and righteous. He does punish sin. This is not a legal fiction. God does enact justice for Uriah's family, for Bathsheba's family. But he can also forgive David and he can forgive us because Jesus says, I took that punishment that was deserved. It's not a religious fantasy. This is real forgiveness with an objective proof when we look at the cross. If you're visiting with us this morning and and you don't know this sort of forgiveness, you don't know this sort of cleansing that you can have through Jesus Christ, we want to say welcome. We are so glad that you have come and visited with us this morning. We have good news for you. We have such good news that although we have rebelled against the holy God of the universe, even though we have have shamed him by saying that we are going to worship other things, the good things he gave us, we're going to say, that is worthy and you are not. Even though we have done that, God loves us. God loves you. And he sent his son, Jesus, to die on the cross, to pay the punishment we deserve for our sin as our substitute for our rebellion so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be reconciled to a right relationship with him. And after three days, we know this is true because Jesus rose from the dead to vindicate the truth of these claims and to offer this forgiveness to you if you would repent of your sin and place your trust in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. This is offered to you, as we just read, as a free gift to you, a gift of grace if you'd respond in that way. We would love to tell you more about this Jesus. We would love to tell you more about this gift of forgiveness. Please, if, you're, if you want to know more, please don't leave today without talking to someone. Talk to, your, to the person who brought you. Talk to any member of our church. I'll be at the back of the sanctuary. We would love to tell you more about this good news of forgiveness through Jesus Christ. Because that's the answer to our question. When we've sinned like David, that's how we can be forgiven like David. That's That's why we can have this full picture of forgiveness that he gives in Psalm 51. But it's interesting that David doesn't end Psalm 51 there. There's a few more verses. Because this repentant heart then responds to that forgiveness in adoration. It overflows in adoration. See, up till now, all of David's descriptions have been internal. It's about the internal relationship, the private relationship about David and God. But the repentance that David experiences privately in his heart internally doesn't just stay internally. It flows out externally in visible acts of worship. Because according to David, if we've really been forgiven, if I've really experienced that internally, it doesn't just stay internally. And so look at how this internal becomes external in worship when David experiences forgiveness. Look first at verse 13. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Because of the forgiveness he's experienced, David says, I got to tell other people. I can't keep this to myself. Right? What is he going to teach? What is he going to tell others about God? He he's clarifies it the next verse. He's going to tell sinners, here's how you get back to God. Here's how you get forgiven. Here's how you get reconciled to God. David says, listen, I've experienced such great forgiveness. How can I keep that to myself? He goes and tells that good news to others. That's exactly what Psalm 32 that Pastor Bob read was about, where David's declaring, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man whom the Lord counts no iniquity and whose spirit there's no deceit. He's saying, you want to know that kind of blessedness? I'll tell you how. I'll tell you how you can experience that because I experienced it and you can too, which is only right. If you've experienced this kind of forgiveness, how can we keep it to ourselves? How can we not go tell others so that they could experience it too? So that begs the question, have we experienced that kind of forgiveness and does it show? Secondly, look at verses 14 through 17. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it nor uh, you will not be pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. Because of the forgiveness David experienced, he can't keep it inside, he's got to worship. He's got to sing to God. With his tongue, with his lips, with his mouth, he worships God. Why does he worship? Because he's experienced who God is and what he's done. Right? There are, are there days when David probably felt tired are there days when David probably felt out of it? He just, I just don't feel like singing today. I'm sure he did. He's human, right? Then what is it that motivates him to worship? What God's done and who God is because of how worthy God is for our worship. God is worthy because of who he is. As we sung today, eternal God, unchanging, mysterious and unknown, his boundless love unfailing and grace and mercy shown. Hallelujah, glory be to our great God. Because we've experienced his love, we've experienced his grace, we've experienced his mercy, how could we not worship him? God is worthy also because of what he's done for us in Christ. So we sing, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied who looked on him to pardon me, to look on him and pardon me. If we've experienced that kind of forgiveness, how can we not worship God? That's the type of sacrifice that David says God wants, not burnt offerings, but worship from a heart of gratitude. If we've truly experienced this kind of forgiveness, this glorious multi- multifaceted nature of God's grace, how could we not worship him? Then we have to ask, how do what kind, of, what kind of forgiveness have we experienced by the way that we worship? Finally, verses 18 and 19, David ends this psalm by saying, Do good to Zion and your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem, then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. So because of the forgiveness he's experienced, David says, Well, what is David saying here? He's talking about gratitude for his forgiveness, and he starts praying for the community. He starts praying for his nation, for other people. And some people think this is out of place. Some people think that someone later after David came and they wrote this verse because it just just doesn't make sense with the rest of the psalm. But I want to say it does make sense with the rest of the psalm. That this is a right reaction when we have been forgiven. You see, David understands something. He understands that my sin doesn't just affect me, my sin affects others too. My sin affects my relationship with my friends and family. My my sin affects the testimony that I have for Christ to those who don't know him. My sin affects my church, who would add the the leaven of my my bad testimony to our community, according to 1 Corinthians 5. My, My sin affects my nation, adding to spiritual decay instead of being salt and light. You see, there's a lie out there that says it's okay to sin as long as it doesn't hurt anyone. And David's saying that's a lie. Our sin always affects other people, even when it's not directed against other people. And that's why one of the overflows, one of the outworkings of David's forgiveness and his repentance is that he is seeking to pray for others who have been affected by his sin. He is seeking to make right those who have been affected by his sin. Because if we've been truly forgiven, how could we not then seek to make things right with others? Be a blessing on their lives instead of a curse. You know, and and, and so we see that genuine forgiveness doesn't just stay internal. It overflows with our testimony, our singing, and our relationship. And so here's what it means for us. It means that if you've been forgiven, if you've really been forgiven, it should not just stay with you. That should overflow. Your forgiveness is not just about you. My forgiveness is not just about me. It should show in the way that we are blessing others. It's not just an internal and private matter. It is an external and worshipful, worshipful matter. If we've been forgiven, how can we not testify to others how they can be forgiven? We should be going out today as beggars telling other beggars where we can find bread, right? That if we've been forgiven, how could that not show in how we worship? That Sunday is not a chore. I know some of you are thinking that until you've got your coffee working, the Sunday might feel like a chore. But Sunday's not a chore. It's an opportunity to respond to the God who gave us such great forgiveness. If you've experienced forgiveness, it should show by the way we seek to make things right who have been affected by our sin. Both those that have been affected that we've sinned against and others that don't even know as we seek to be a blessing for them. It shows in our relationships as well. If we've been experienced this kind of forgiveness, how can we keep it to ourselves? In Shakespeare's play, Macbeth, Lady Macbeth's wife, King Macbeth, states this, quote, Will all great Neptune's ocean wash this blood clean from my hand? No, this my hand will rather the multitudinous seas incarnadine making the green one red. He says, I can't think of anything that's going to wash my hand. My hands are only going to bloody other things. Macbeth said he knows of no way to be cleansed from his sin, no way to, to, to have that feeling of his sins being stained on him but thank God that that's not true. Thank God that that's not the case. David shows us there is a way to be cleansed, that we, when we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness because of God's abundant love and steadfast mercy. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for the blood of Jesus. We thank you for this forgiveness we can have, not just as a religious thought, but anchored in the objective fact of what Jesus did for us in his death, burial, and resurrection. And so, Father, we pray that we would, we would heed David's advice. We'd come to you with our sin so we could experience the forgiveness and that it would overflow to your worship and adoration. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.